This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Naomi Oreskes, the Henry Charles Lee Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University. I always kind of interested in the way science was related to society and always a little bit frustrated that we didn't talk about those things in science classrooms. And at some point in my own scientific work, I started feeling that they weren't just curiosities, that they were central. She is an internationally renowned earth scientist, historian, and author of both scholarly and popular books and articles on the history of earth and environmental science, including most recently, Why Trust Science and Science on a Mission, How Military Funding Shaped What We Do and Don't Know About the Ocean. Dr. Oreskes will be engaging with the University of Montana community on February 17th, as part of our presidential lecture series. We caught up with her over Zoom. Professor Oreskes, thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. So tell us, where did you grow up and what did your parents do? I grew up in the heart of New York City on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. My father was a biochemist. He worked for many years as a research scientist at a hospital and then became a professor. And my mom was a homemaker and community activist. And so your father's academic path, was that that must have been some sort of form of inspiration for you? Oh, yeah, for sure. I'd say on two levels. My dad had a big interest in natural history. So when we would go on family vacations, we would collect rocks and minerals and fossils. And also, I think my dad really believed in science. He truly believed that science made the world a better place and that being a scientist was being part of a larger, bigger, wonderful human project. So you occupy what some might consider a particular corner of academia. I mean, how would you describe your field and what are the questions that you're primarily interested in? Well, I work in a department of the history of science. We study the development of scientific knowledge. We study questions such as what does it mean for something to count as evidence in science? How do scientists judge evidence and decide whether there's enough of it of sufficient quality to say that something is known. And then we also are interested in questions about how science is related to the broader culture of which it is a part. And what was sort of your path into this work? I mean, did you, you come up through earth science? Were you practicing earth science and then transitioned into history? Have you always, are always been interested in the history of science? Well, both. I did train as a professional geologist. My undergraduate degree was in mining geology. I worked as an exploration geologist for several years before going back to graduate school. And I began graduate school at Stanford with the expectation of becoming a geology professor and having an academic career as an earth scientist. But I always had these other interests. I had other interests in what you could broadly call the questions of science and society that I work on today. And I was always somehow, for reasons I can't really say why, but always kind of interested in the way science was related to society and always a little bit frustrated that we didn't talk about those things in science classrooms. We sometimes talked about them on field trips over a beer at the end of the day, you know, as kind of casual things, as things that were sort of curious but not central. And at some point in my own scientific work, I started feeling that they weren't just curiosities, that they were central And it started to sort of bug me that we didn't talk about them. And so I enrolled in a philosophy of science class just out of interest. 
as it turned out, the professor was a historian of science. I didn't know that history of science existed as a field. Most people don't. But when I took this course in history of science, that was my eureka moment when I discovered that there was actually a field of study, a professional field, uh, where you could earn a living and ask these kinds of questions about scientific knowledge that really, really drove me. And so once I had that opportunity, then I began to transition from doing pure science to doing this work at the nexus of science and society. And so often, you know, when somebody like me who, you know, has a lay interest and knowledge of history, set, you know, has a sense for something being unique, it, it, you know, a, a historian will often say like, no, it's not unique. This has happened before and will happen again. Uh, it feels like we're living through just a unique moment with the role of science in our society, controversy over it, its influence on policy and people's decisions. And I mean, COVID-19 has stressed that and exacerbated it in many, in many ways. How are you thinking about this moment we're in with science right now? Well, you know, historians can be very annoying because often we do say, oh, yeah, we've seen this before. And and so I try not to do that because I think <laughs> no two historical moments are ever exactly the same. I think we can learn from history in terms of general insights on how people behave and how people react. I often say that I think of history as being this giant repository of information about human beings. So you could do a psychology experiment with 50 undergraduates and it might be informative, but you know, with history, we have the proof, the documented evidence of how people behave in varied circumstances over the, you know, the whole, you know, past 6,000 years of recorded history. Mm -hmm. So I think history is a really underutilized tool in that respect, and that we can and should look to history more to better understand how people behave and predict how people will and won't respond. So for example, in the case of COVID, I think every historian of science or every historian of medicine that I know did in fact predict some of the challenges that we faced okay. because vaccine hesitancy, vaccine resistance, vaccine denial is not a new phenomenon. We have evidence of vaccine resistance going back to the invention of vaccines. So in some ways, some of what happened was not surprising. And if public policymakers had paid even a little bit of attention to what historians of medicine could have told them about these. I think some of the difficulties that we faced could have been less. But that said, there's a unique quality and a, I would say, sadly unique quality to the present moment, because I don't think we've ever seen, certainly not in the history of the United States, the kind of organized attempt to undermine factual information that we have seen in recent years, not just in relation to COVID-19, but also in relation to climate change and other public policy issues. And this is really what my work has been focused on for the last 10 or 12 years, why people have done this, how they have done it, how it has worked, and what the heck we could do to get out of this mess that we're now in. And what are some of the, the, the main themes there? I mean, are, are, can we attribute a lot of it to the incentives in our, in our media environment? I mean, what are the primary drivers here? Uh, I became interested in this issue because of climate change, because as an earth scientist and a historian of earth science, I became aware of the way in which scientific information about climate change was being misrepresented in the media. And a lot, like a lot of people, I thought at first that the problem was the media. But what I learned when I started working on this was that the media was really being used. The media was a tool of the true merchants of doubt. And they were coming out of two main sources. One was kind of obvious, the fossil fuel industry that had a vested interest in denying the reality of climate change. 
But the other was less obvious, and it was a network of right-wing libertarian-leaning think tanks who were opposed to the idea of government action, well, what you could say on principle, but who were allowing that principle to, in their own minds, justify or rationalize disparaging, dismissing, downplaying, discounting, a whole set of D words, the science. And so that was the story that Eric Conway and I discovered. And I would say there were two main parts to that discovery. The first was that we traced this back to the tobacco industry, that we were able to show that the tobacco industry starting in the 1950s had systematically developed a set of strategies, you can call it a playbook, to undermine scientific evidence that proved that using tobacco killed you. And this was highly developed. They hired PR firms, they hired advertising companies, and they deliberately and consciously manipulated the media. And we found the documents that proved this, documents where people in the tobacco industry would plan to have meetings with editors to try to persuade them to tell both sides of the story, even though by this time the scientific evidence of the harms of tobacco was was overwhelming. So that's sort of kind of chapter one of the story. And then chapter two of the story was how that strategy, how that playbook was then applied to other stories. And so in the book, we trace it through a number of debates about environmental and public health concerns, including acid rain, including the harms of persistent pesticides like DDT. But the kind of mother of the environmental problems is, of course, climate change, because it affects everything and everyone. And we were able to show in our work that not only were the same strategies used to manipulate the media, to confuse the public, to prevent action, but in some cases, even the same people were involved. So an absolute direct provable link from tobacco denial to climate change denial. And sadly, we've seen many of the same, again, the same people, the same organizations, and the same strategies being used to downplay the harms of COVID-19. In the case of tobacco and fossil fuels, I mean, the profit motive of the corporate infrastructure seems pretty clear. In the case of COVID, it seems like maybe they're trying to serve the, the, the aim of political division more so than a corporate interest. It's hard for me to kind of connect those dots. Exactly. And I think this is one of the things that's been so important about COVID that I think many people haven't fully understood is the role of political ideology. So I think a lot of people have a kind of cynical attitude that it's always about money, follow the money, you know. And sure, money's really important and money has played a very big role in the climate change denial story as it did with tobacco. But I think that both our work and the experience of COVID-19 shows that people make a big mistake not to also consider the power of ideas and the power of ideology. Because so much of COVID-19 hasn't really been about the money. It's been about promoting a kind of radical free market, radical libertarian, radically individualistic, and radically anti-government vision of how our lives should operate. And many people subscribe to that now completely independently of whether or not they own stock in ExxonMobil or Merck or whatever, or Moderna. So it really has become an ideological problem about how we think about our role, what our responsibility is to our families, our friends, our neighbors, and the other people that we interact with in our communities, and what the appropriate role of the government should be in protecting us from dangers. And my view, along with Eric Conway, my now long, long-term co-author, is that these are legitimate questions. Having an open and free conversation about how much the government should become involved to protect us from harms is a completely 100% legitimate question. 
But the problem is, it's not an honest debate. It's not a level playing field because the media environment, the social media environment, the internet is now so saturated by disinformation. And so then the question becomes, why is that the case? Who is it? You know, who is behind that? What is driving this? And then it gets complicated because then the money kicks back in, but in a different way than you might guess. It's not the money of, say, some specific interested industry like the fossil fuel industry, because in this case, industry is actually on the side of vaccination, right? Industry is on the side of selling masks. So that's where it gets interesting. And that's where I think the kind of big reveal comes out. The industry is is really the same network of people that we traced in Merchants of Doubt, which is to say a group of think tanks that are funded by the private sector who don't want a strong federal government because they don't want a strong federal government passing environmental regulations, occupational safety and health regulations. There's a whole world of government management of the marketplace to protect workers, to protect consumers, to protect the environment. And this network of business folks who don't like that have been fighting the federal government for a long time. And so the new books, and I can make my segue to my shameless plug for our new work, the new book is about that. It's about this bigger, longer history of the private sector in this company. Not all businesses, by any means, there are certainly some wonderful businesses in this country, but a network of businesses organized around a group called the National Association of Manufacturers that for most of the 20th century was the largest lobbying group on behalf of American manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, who are still, both of these groups still active today, who have for a hundred years fought government regulation of the marketplace. They And so in the new book, we trace this back to debates in the early 20th century over child labor. These people did not want the federal government to stop child labor. They did not want the federal government to develop social security. They did not want the federal government to protect the rights of workers to unionize. And today they do not want the federal government to mandate vaccines. It's a very long, it's a very complicated, and it's a very important story. As you're laying that out there, I'm, th- I'm thinking about you know, how science operates, the various sort of methods to develop knowledge and science. And then within medical science in particular, there's this kind of structure of authority, you know, the doctor in the white lab code and telling you what to do. And there's this kind of intentional power distance. Yet with medical science, it's sort of we're living through this changing illness and and learning more and more about it as we go. And so that that sort of process of our current state of knowledge changing, of science doing its work, seems to feed into these tools that, you know, I love your 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 phrase entitled the merchants of doubt, that this it sort of feeds right into their playbook, if you will. Exactly. One of the reasons these strategies of doubt-mongering work is because of the intrinsic uncertainty in science. So science is a learning process. We're always learning new things. As long as science is working, as long as scientists are living and breathing, we will learn new things. And that's good, right? Learning is a good thing. But the merchants of doubt and their allies try to turn it into a bad thing. They try to exploit it and to say, oh, but look, there's this uncertainty. You just changed your mind about this thing. You don't know anything. And so they try to use the intrinsic uncertainty of science as a reason to disbelieve all science, no matter how well established. When COVID-19 first developed, it was new and we didn't really know what it was. And so there was an early period in which the scientific community did send a lot of mixed messages about what people should or shouldn't do. And that opened a space then for the merchants of doubt to exploit that and to say, look, these guys don't know what they're talking about. Don't listen to them. 
And then added to that is this question, and this is something that you know I've been really interested in for a long time. It's about America. Why is this issue particularly a problem here? So America is a country where we value our individual rights very strongly and where we do have a very strong notion about individual decision-making. And we're a much more individualistic country than most of our European counterparts, and we're way, way more individualistic than most of our Asian counterparts. And this gets exploited. And so the merchants of doubt deliberately foster this notion. It's what I call the don't tell me what to do. I don't want the government telling me what to do. It's the don't tread on me attitude that somehow the government is usurping our rights as individuals if they tell us we have to wear a mask. Now, of course, this is ridiculous because in so many areas of life, we know, we understand that, of course, we have to have rules and regulations. I mean, you drive on the freeway, you know, you're not allowed to drive backwards on the wrong side of the road. Uh, You have to have a driver's license. You don't expect to have the right to walk into a restaurant naked, no shirts, no shoes, no service, right? We all take that for granted. So why not say no mask, no service? So these are all trade-offs and no two societies make these judgments exactly the same. But in America, we have a long history of tending more towards the side of individual choice and less towards the side of collective action. And that's okay. I'm not saying that American individualism is necessarily a bad thing. But what I'm saying is that it's been ex- being exploited by libertarians who want us to distrust the government, who want us to see the government as the enemy. So the subtitle of the new book, the title of the book is The Big Myth, the myth being that free markets can solve all our problems. And the subtitle is How American Business Taught Us to Loathe the Government and Love the Free Market. Because a big part of this strategy is to try to persuade the American people not to see the government as an embodiment of our will, as a way in which we can enact what we believe to be right choices, but as the enemy as the threat. And you see this if you look at the images from, say, anti-mask rallies or anti-vaccine rallies, people, you know, holding up the signs saying, you know, don't tell me what to do, or signs, you know, with a picture of a mask, mask equals tyranny. And I mean, it's really rather ridiculous on one level when you think about it. I mean, a typical procedural mask costs 10 cents, and it takes less than a second to put it on, and it's not that hard to breathe. I mean, asking a person to wear a mask is a pretty small ask. And we have seen across this country, particularly, you know, in so-called red states, this incredible hostility as if, you know, as if people were being asked to give up their firstborn child. So where is that hostility coming from? And in the new book, we, we try to explain why and we show how it's not. This just didn't come out of nowhere. There's a reason why we're seeing these reactions now. We'll be back to my conversation with Naomi Oreskes after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey folks, this is Nick Mott, editor at A New Angle. This episode of the show is brought to you by Alps, the largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance based right here in Missoula, Montana. Not only does Alps provide outstanding insurance products and risk management resources, they also provide themselves on making the insurance process as easy as possible for their busy policyholders. Beyond that, Alps was named a 2021 Best Place to Work in Montana. So if you value creativity and innovation and want to work in a supportive and nurturing culture, check out career options at Alps. They want to hire Montana's best. 
To learn more, visit alpsinsurance.com. That's www.alpsinsurance.com. Hi, this is Joe Anderson. I am the CEO of Reflex Protect, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Naomi Oreskes, professor of the history of science at Harvard University. It occurs to me, Naomi, that, you know, this, this, this issue of trusting science is often used as a mantra on the left. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what does the left get wrong about science, whether it's the topic of GMOs or even now with masks, perhaps. I mean, the efficacy of these cloth masks is now under scrutiny. And we have uh, the Omicron variant that seems more transmissible, even if you are wearing a mask. And so how do we kind of navigate uh, how to sort of interpret and put science into action on the left? Well, I think the main thing the left gets wrong is the same thing that scientists get wrong, which is to think that this is a problem of uh, ignorance okay. or a problem of stupidity, to think that like people who won't wear masks are stupid. I mean, that's not what's going on here. And, and we have lots of evidence that many people who reject vaccination, for example, are quite educated. We even have evidence that shows that among Republicans, the more educated they are, the less likely they are to accept the scientific evidence of climate change. Hmm. So this is a really, really important finding. I, I would say on at least two levels, and probably listeners can think of lots of other reasons why it's important. So the vast majority of these people are not stupid, but they are influenced by an ideology that, in my opinion, is highly destructive and kind of illogical. As I said, I mean, we do accept constraints on our behavior in all kinds of ways, and most of those constraints are logical because if we don't accept those constraints, we not only hurt other people, but in many cases we hurt ourselves. So I think getting the conversation onto the territory of, well, 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 why wouldn't you wear a mask if you do accept that you need to have a driver's license? Opening up a space to discuss the trade-offs, the pros and cons is a better place to be than to be just saying, I think you're an idiot, right? You know, so, so I think there's a kind of pragmatic benefit to to recognizing this, but also in terms of the solutions. If you think that people are ignorant, then an appropriate response is to try to educate them. And this is what the scientific community did for decades, to think this was a problem of what was often referred to as public understanding of science, and that what the scientific community needed to do was to do a better job of educating people. Well, education is definitely a good thing, in my opinion. And there's certainly a place for that. But for the vast majority of people, that's not the issue. So you could give them as much information as possible. You could talk until you're blue in the face. You could go on and on about the temperature records that prove that the climate is warming. You could go on and on about the isotope ratios that prove the CO2 is coming from fossil fuels. Or when it comes to masks, you know, you could talk at great length about all the evidence of how masking does reduce the spread of disease, and it will get you nowhere because that's not what the issue is. So the most important thing, I think, it's, you know, think about being a doctor. If you misdiagnose the disease, then you will give your patient medicines that won't solve the problem. And I think that's a lot of what we've seen, both in the climate change space and in the COVID space over the last several years. Well, in our remaining time, let's talk a little bit about your upcoming uh, interaction with the University of Montana community here. Uh, unfortunately, we had to pivot to Zoom, uh, given Omicron and, and, and spike of cases, particularly here in, in Montana. So what can listeners expect? Your talk is coming up on February 17th. I'm sure we're going to touch on a lot of the issues we sort of previewed today. But why are you excited about this particular engagement? 
because the last few months have been such a moving target, I haven't actually 100% decided what I'm going to talk about, but it will definitely be related to the topics we've talked about, about science and information, you know, what we know about when people trust science and when they don't, and maybe maybe some things about what we as citizens can do to improve our discourse about these important topics that affect all of our lives. And also, most important, what we can do to stop dangerous climate change. As we close here, historians look to the past, but often in such a way that we can sort of gain insights about what we might expect in the future. It's, it's, uh, I never like to ask people to make predictions, but based on what you know from your studies and what we're living through right now, what gives you hope that you know, we might be able to solve this climate change problem or, or you know, maybe come together as, as a result of COVID or some of the other challenges we're facing? Well, you know, I always get that question. I kind of feel like it's a trick question because nobody <laughs> wants me to say, you know, oh, it's, we're really screwed, you know? <laughs> so, oh, you can do that. But, That's but an option. I, 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 you know, I think about this a lot in my teaching. I taught a class this semester, a brand new course I developed this year called Life and Death in the Anthropocene. And I said to the students up front, my job here isn't to make you feel good. My job here is to be honest about the challenge we face. I think we have two grounds for optimism in all of the challenges we face right now. One is technological, that actually Americans are, and not just Americans, humans in general, are brilliant and ingenious. The technologies we need both to stop the pandemic and to fix climate change exist. And if you think about the vaccination story, it's an astonishing story of scientific ingenuity and innovation. I mean, in under a year, scientists have developed multiple vaccines for this new virus that are astonishingly safe and effective. So what does that tell us? isn't really a scientific problem. It's a political problem, right? We need to figure out how to, how to get the unvaccinated people vaccinated. And we have to find a way to be generous enough, or even if you want to call it self-interested enough, to realize that it is in our own self-interest to vaccinate the rest of the world. And I feel like this is kind of the one optimistic thing that I've come to in this third third of my own life, that very often what's good for us personally is also good for the rest of the world and vice versa. Like there's lots and lots of science that now shows that taking care of the environment, you know, protecting trees and fresh air is good for us. We are healthier when we breathe clean air. We are happier when we spend time in nature. And the scientific evidence of this is overwhelming. So if we can remember that and say, you know, getting the rest of the world vaccinated, it's not just an act of altruism. It's actually an act of self-interest. When we take care of the world, we also take care of ourselves. And so there is grounds for optimism there because we have the technologies we need. We know how to make effective vaccinations and we know how to get energy from wind and solar and, and battery storage and other things we need to address the climate problem. And history tells us that change is possible. People have made enormous changes in the past and we can make enormous changes again in the future, but it's not enough just to get more scientific information. We have to think through the cultural and the political obstacles. I think we can do it, but only if we focus on those obstacles and not think that we can solve it just by getting more data. Well, Professor Oreskes, this has been fantastic. I appreciate you sharing your time with us. I am really excited for your visit with our community on February 17th on Zoom. If listeners want to learn more, register for the talk, visit www.umt.edu slash president. 
And in the meantime, if listeners want to learn more about your work, Naomi, where would you point them? Uh, well, my books are available on all the standard online booksellers, Powell's Books, if you want to support an independent bookstore. Um, I've got lots of talks online. I have two TED Talks, so I have a pretty heavy internet footprint, and I have an unusual name, so I'm, my work is pretty easy to find. Okay. Well, listeners will find you. Naomi, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.